Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Thank you. Welcome to the second anniversary edition of Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Yes, two years ago this month we were at the first UK space conference and this time we're at the Open University in Milton Keynes to meet the scientists preparing for a cometary rendezvous. And as Curiosity celebrates its first year on Mars, we'll be talking to a mission engineer about what to expect in the next 12 months. Plus, we'll hear from the first Iranian woman in space. To me, it felt like home because it was this destination, this place I always wanted to go to. And uh, I was finally there. With us are Ian Wright and Dan Andrews from the Ptolemy team here at the Open University. Dan Andrews, could you just begin by reminding us what Rosetta is actually going to do and what the, its lander, Philae, is going to do and where Ptolemy fits in, which is the instrument that uh, you're making here at the Open University. Or you've made here, should I say, because it's already on there. It's a bit like the film Armageddon, but without Bruce Willis and without the nukes. We're going to go and actually intercept, rendezvous with and enter orbit around a comet nucleus. This is the first time this has happened. We will spend six months getting to know the comet in really great detail. Rosetta itself has radar, it has cameras, it has spectrometers, it has all the kit you'd want to give to a spy satellite, basically, sat in orbit around a comet. We will get to know the comet in great intricate detail, We'll then pick a landing site about the size of Wembley Stadium and then drop Philae, which is a washing machine-sized lander, onto the surface. Philae has all the kit you give to a geologist in the field. It has ground-penetrating radar in uh, teamwork with the orbiter. It has seismometers, it has cameras, really, really cool kit. One of the instruments is Ptolemy which is a miniature gas chromatograph mass spectrometer. It's a chemical nose. It will take samples from above, on and beneath the surface of the comet. It will combust or pyrolyze them at great heat, take the gases from that process, pass it through a chromatogram to separate the gases out to their constituent parts to then be detected by a mass spectrometer. This information lets us link the comet to maybe the Earth's oceans and maybe even the origins of life on Earth. Ian, give give us a sense of the timeline, because I should say we are in your mission control room. Now, that sounds a lot grander than it actually is. It certainly does from where I'm sitting. We've got the timeline of the mission is pasted up on the walls around us. So just talk us through Rosetta. It was launched in 2004. I was fortunate enough to be at the launch. That was uh, that was an amazing experience. And a year after it was launched, it came back overhead, and and uh, we could you could see it again close by because 
This is what it's been doing. It's been going round and round the solar system, winding itself up to get faster and faster so that it can be flung out into deep space, which is where it is now, to get a fast enough speed to catch the comet up. That's what it's trying to do. It's trying to catch the comet up. It's extremely ambitious. I never particularly thought that when I was a young man. Now I'm an older man, I'm beginning to see it from a different perspective, and uh, it, it does seem positively balmy, to be honest. We'll talk more about how balmy it is a little later on. First to another hugely ambitious mission, the Curiosity rover's exploration of Mars. Not since Apollo has the space programme got quite as much positive global attention or generated so much excitement. Touchdown confirmed. We're safe on Mars. Mission control at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory on the 6th of August 2012. Well, almost a year on and the Mars Science Laboratory mission with the Curiosity rover has already achieved one of its main goals to discover whether Mars once had the conditions suitable for life. And it appears it did. Well, I've been speaking to NASA's Daniel Limonardi, Principal Systems Engineer on the rover, about the mission's success and what's next. We were sent to Mars to look for habitable zones. And when we finally got around to drilling, you know, just a few months ago, January, February, um, we actually hit pay dirt with the drill and the science sample that we got. And we've demonstrated that there are habitable places on Mars that billions of years ago could have supported life as we know it. That's the key highlight. Uh, There's been lots of other great things that we've been doing as well. We've done atmospheric measurements, looking at methane, looking at scooped samples um, to see how, you know, what's, what kind of chemistry is in the scoop samples. Just lots of exciting things. And you talk about that, that primary mission goal almost been accomplished so soon. Were you expecting that? You know, that's one of the things with these exploration missions of discovery, where we don't know if it's going to take two years or the first one. So it was a hope, but it was not necessarily an expectation or a plan. And so we're happy that we got it. And we hope to kind of make it more concrete by finding additional places Further down, closer to Mount Sharp, we know there are more clay-bearing minerals, more of these sulfate rocks that we're interested in. And so if we can hit a few more of those with a drill and analyze those samples and really show a pattern and repeatability, I think it'll really put the nail in the coffin. What's next then? What, what about the next few months? We're a year in. You know it all works. You've done some initial science. What's, what's the next plan? I think we're kind of done with this intensive drilling and dirt investigation phase. And now... The science team is really hoping to get to Mount Sharp. We're going to do a little detour and try to take some pictures of some of the entry-descent landing hardware. There's some descent stage debris. It was kind of a surprise where we found some of this debris, and so we'd like to drive by and take some pictures to see what that was to help kind of understand what might have happened for future missions. And then we're just going to hightail it to the base of Mount Sharp. And we expect that's probably going to take on the order of a year to cover the 8.5 kilometers to get there. And we've also, the science community has, you know, using orbital data and things, we've identified about five waypoints, five kind of interesting places. Um, and nominally, we have a little bit of time to check out those five places on the way to the base of Mount Sharp. Uh, what are you looking for at the base of the mountain? So the base of the mountain is kind of the main reason we came to Gale Crater. Uh, from orbit, we saw clay minerals, phyllosilicates, our clays, and also sulfate minerals, both of which generally are indicative of water being present in the past during the formation and so we're trying to you know get some ground truth with the rover to confirm those minerals are actually there and then the mountain itself you know is about uh, five kilometers high and it's kind of like the grand canyon on earth where you have a lot of these stratigraphic layers and it's as you climb the mountain you can investigate all these layers and you're kind of reading the history book of the planet backwards 
you know, from the oldest days to the youngest days. And so that's, that's the main reason we're at this location. And that's what we're hoping to do is effectively read the scientific history of the geology and the climate of the planet. Did you just say five kilometers high? That's right, five kilometers. Uh, 15,000 feet, five kilometers. Yeah, pretty high. So that's going to take us a while if we go all the way to the top. So the plan <laughs> is you, you go to the base of the mountain, that's right. you look, and that's the, the scientific hotspot, really. And then you're going to climb the mountain. So I, I think that's going to depend. I don't think anybody's decided yet. Less than the first kilometer of the mountain are the, are, is where all the clays and sulfates are. Above that, it looks like there's a lot, there's a lot more windblown material. I think we'll just have to see, depending on what we find, whether it's worth exploring the lower part of the mountain more or making it up to the top and just kind of, you know, taking the cool pictures from up there. <laughs> and how will you, you do that? I mean, have you got a, a path up? Do you know it's even climbable with a rover? You know, one of the cool things about the Mars Exploration Program is we have this team of spacecraft there. We have awesome orbital data with, you know, half-meter resolution photographic images. We have elevation data. So we have basically a great topo map and aerial photos, you know, if you're kind of used to planning hikes on Earth. So we have folks on the team whose job it is to evaluate those paths, candidate paths up the mountain. And yeah, based on our initial analysis, we do think we can make it a good way up that mountain. So is there a, a fairly clear path? Is it, is it a fairly smooth slope? What, what's it like? Um, gosh, there are slopes that are easily above 10, maybe 20 degrees. The rover is supposed to be able to work at up to 30 degrees tilt. Um, partly for that reason of going into craters and climbing mountains and things like that. And so we do have to worry about little cliffs, right? We can't climb cliffs and things. And so, you know, but in general, uh, so far, we have seen that there are kind of side windy paths up, at least into all the interesting places. So you've got Curiosity Rover, it's heading off to the base of the mountain, it's mm-hmm. going to do the science there, so then it's going to head up the mountain. This is just one mission in part of a, a much grander plan, but a, a slow plan to, to explore Mars. It's a great point. We've been exploring the, the red planet now with spacecraft continuously since about the mid-90s. There's been a, a robotic presence at, at Mars since the mid-90s. We've been on the surface of Mars continuously since about 2004. We hope to be on the surface of Mars continuously, you know, if things go right, kind of forever at this point. And so, yeah, the, the grand vision is that we would um, continue sending missions maybe once every four, two to four years, paving the way for eventual human exploration and ideally this is more my opinion you know uh colonization hopefully you know to help get people off the planet go to mars colonize mars and maybe colonize the rest of the solar system that's kind of the 30 to 100 year vision right that the space program is working on daniel limonardi one of the senior engineers on nasa's curiosity rover and i was speaking to him at the aspen ideas festival where i was taking part in several events on behalf of bbc future and uh, we'll have more interviews from that trip to colorado in the space boffins podcast over the coming months in fact if you go to our facebook page you can see a picture of me in a particularly silly outfit looking at some space mirrors nobody looks good in a hairnet let's face it and professor ian wright here at the open university are you surprised at the interest in the Curiosity mission? It keeps on going, doesn't it? I'm not at all surprised. Mars is a fantastic place, and I think this particular mission is absolutely awesome. It's impossible to describe it any other way. It has redefined how uh, to do planetary exploration. The kind of things that keep coming up on almost like a daily basis are, uh, are amazing. I mean, some we could have perhaps guessed at. Others uh, continue to surprise us. But uh, the different strand of my research through my life has been uh, on studying Mars. Um, I started uh, a long time ago studying Martian meteorites. 
And uh, for, for this um, mission now to be doing it actually in the field uh, is tremendous. And, uh, of course, what we all want to see is, uh, is uh, astronauts uh, in the field as well doing the scientific work. In fact, you've got, in one of your laboratories here, you've got a, a sort of working instrument that was destined to go on Mars, but sadly didn't through Beagle 2. Yes, we have what we call our qualification model of the GAP instrument. GAP stood for Gas Analysis Package, and uh, we, we still have that. It, it, it no longer works, but it is fully representative in terms of its size and, and its construction, and it did at one point uh, uh, work. And uh, it, it is nice. I, I look at it now, and I think and a number of us look at it and, and think of it as a bit of a work of art. Um, these instruments are a bit like that. They're, they're one-offs or two-offs. Uh, all the components are bespoke, and they all have to be fitted together in a certain kind of way. And uh, there is a certain artistry and, and beauty about them when you, when you see them afterwards. It is a shame it's probably in pieces on the surface of Mars, but, you know, it's a risky business. Yeah. Well, speaking of the, the beauty of the instruments, this, the one that we've got in front of us now, Ptolemy, beauty isn't necessarily a word I'd use for it at the moment. It looks like a giant alarm that would, you'd see stuck outside a building with what looked like two bells... Uh, above a black box. This is Ptolemy. It is indeed, and I must admit, I hadn't considered it quite in that light, but now you've pointed it out, that's exactly what it looks like. Uh, yes, it, do, it, it does look like a black box, but yes, with two alarm bells. And well, let's go inside the black box then. So if we take the cover of the black box off, uh, inside we can begin to see the intricacies of the, uh, of the instrument. It, remember, it resembles a, a car engine, actually, with pistons. It, it sort of looks like that, but of course it, it's... Actually, nothing like that. <laughs> Inside here we have uh, the devices which make the measurements, uh, the mass spectrometer and the gas chromatograph. There's a number of valves. Those are the things that look like the pistons. And what they're doing is controlling the gas flow around the instrument. Uh, what, what's not visible here is the, is the drilling mechanism that will collect the sample, hopefully, from the surface of the comet and deposit it in, a, in an oven from which we then degas the, the materials of interest and, and pipe them into this system. What about these two, so, what did I say? I said they look like bells, they, they're silver. Um, what, what are these? These are two tanks of helium gas, and this is what we use to actually push the gases from the comet through the system. It's through a device called a gas chromatograph. On, on the instruments that's in space, we have to hope that the helium's still in there and that the gas tanks uh, can still be opened and that gases can still flow around the system as we originally intended certainly was working last time we had a, a play with it, which was during the flypast of Lutetia a few years ago. But we wait to see what happens when the device comes out of hibernation. Dan, as, as weight is an important issue with instruments, how has it been managed to get this so compact? Because it is tiny, really, for, for everything it does. Well, to give you some vital stats, um, the thing we're looking at is about the size of a shoebox weighs about four kilos and uses the power of a low-energy light bulb. With any space mission, the driving force is to minimise resources you use. So lightweight, low power, low data. It's really just the advancement technology which has allowed us to do this. We use solid-state memory, we use really lightweight materials. There's carbon fibre, there's titanium alloys, there's aluminium components. In terms of power... Um, usually instruments like this use filaments, like a, a light bulb filament, which use 
quite a bit of electricity to operate. With Ptolemy, we use absolutely minuscule little silicon nanotips. Really, really cutting-edge stuff. It's the use of nanotechnology in space. Ian, a, a lot of the instruments that are made here at the Open University search for life. Will this be doing that as well when it's landing on a, on a comet? Uh, no, that's a controversial question because we're not going to search for life. I know you're not, but that, <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying because you've been involved in it, it yeah. surely you must have slipped something in there somewhere. What, what we're doing with this mission is, is trying to characterise what a comet looks like. And, I mean, Dan has alluded to the fact that we want to understand if there's a relationship between the water we find on a comet. We know there's water there. We know that they're made out of uh, water ice as one of their constituents. So we don't need to go to a comet to find that out. What we want to try and do is understand whether there's a relationship between that water and the water that we see on Earth. And the reason for that is that if there is, then the other things that we can study in a comet, the various organic compounds and whatever else, we can assume then when comets brought water to the Earth, given that there might be a relationship, we've also got a way of looking back in time to look at the organic compounds that have been collected as this sort of galactic detritus at the time of the formation of the solar system and preserved in deep freeze in this comet ever since. So we're not looking for life, but we're looking for those bits and pieces that would have ultimately accumulated on the Earth from which life clearly arose. Dan, you mentioned Bruce Willis at the beginning of this, and you know you associated him with you know, these mega blockbuster Hollywood films this is completely over the top as a mission, isn't it? I mean, it, this is audacious. If you don't try, you don't achieve. Space itself is a risky business. There's really, really immensely complicated things going on in space at the moment, which the general public don't really seem to know about. It's really, really cutting-edge Hollywood, big bang for your back stuff. I'm curious you mentioned cutting-edge. I'm not sure it was Dan or uh, Ian who mentioned cutting-edge. It can't be that cutting edge because you launched it more than two, it will be t- more than ten years. Also, it can't be that cutting edge because the room we're in with your timeline <laughs> has got postage stickers on saying when it's going. They're easy to move about, you know, <laughs> as and when deadlines and schedules slip. You know, <laughs> no, you are absolutely right. It, it it is interesting when this thing actually gets there. Some of the technologies that we have in it will be getting on for fifteen years old, and even we're looking at them and thinking. They're a bit long in the tooth, really. But this is how long the mission has taken to put together and and how long it's taken to get to its target. You know, the cameras that are on board were were cutting edge at the time. They were bespoke devices made specifically for this mission. I mean, they're not not as good as the camera you have in your mobile phone. That's simply the way technology's marched on. Um, But one thing you can't do is really shorten the duration of a spaceflight... um, uh, duration, because actually the, the thing you're trying to get to is a long way away, and it's moving very fast, and it takes a lot of effort and a lot of trouble to actually uh, to actually get there and catch it up. So this is, to some ways, the the only way of doing it. It's great to um, actually be here and see the the instrument or the replica of the instrument as well. After having um, Andy Morse and, and a, one of your Rosetta teammates on in the podcast earlier this year, so it's great to just take it that one step further. Well, Ian and Dan, thank you for the moment. This is the Space Boffins podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and from this week by visiting spaceboffins.com or spaceboffins.co. 
uk where we will be starting the much trailed blog i think we finally got it together i'll be pressing the go button in the next couple of days hopefully uh next though anusha ansari the first iranian woman in space the first woman to take a commercial space flight and the first person to blog from space. After sponsoring the Ansari X Prize in 2004 with $10 million, which enabled the flight of Spaceship One, in 2006 she spent $20 million on six months training and a 10 day mission to the International Space Station. Now she'd earned all this money from her businesses, and uh, when I met Anusha recently in Aspen, before we got into women in space, raising money for spaceflight, inspiring Iranian school children, we talked about what the International Space Station smelt like. The space station uh, is almost like a bachelor pad. You know, I don't think they keep it up that well. But on top of that, you have a lot of equipments and wires and experiments. And, uh, you know, I'm an engineer, so I've been in technology labs. So it smells of that uh, wire smell. And also, um, it's a, you know, closed environment, so the air, you know, just gets recycled and recycled. So it's a very stale, you know, environment. So I suppose it's a bit like being if you were stuck in an aircraft for six months, something like that. Yeah, I imagine that they never opened the door of that aircraft for several years. <laughs> then, then that would be exactly like that. <laughs> it all sounds unpleasant, but you've... When you got into the space station, you said it, it felt like home. You, you wrote on your blog that it, it felt like home. To me, it felt like home because it was this destination, this place I always wanted to go to. And uh, I was finally there. So when I arrived, I, I described it to some people. as like people who go to Mecca. They go to, on a pilgrimage to Mecca. Uh, and for me, it was sort of like my pilgrimage. And I was there and I finally made it. And... I did feel at home and I didn't want to leave, regardless that there were no showers or I didn't care. I, it, all those things is amazing how human body and human mind can adapt to new environments. So I loved it. You also wrote a lot. And one of the points of the blog was to inspire people. But you, was, you are particularly keen to inspire women into space. Uh, I love to see uh, more involvement uh, from uh, women all over the world in the space program. I think we bring a new perspective uh, into everything uh, that we do because of the way we look at life. And um, I always want to make sure that space and our access to space is used for peaceful purposes. And I think by having more women involved in that, the chance of that happening and uh, making sure that all uses will be peaceful, it will be greater. And what about your, the Iranian connection here? You were, you were brought up, you are born in Iran, you are brought up in Iran. I mean, for women in Iran, this is simply not an option. In fact, for many women in the whole Middle East, even having the standard of education you've had, university education in science, is not an option. Mm-hmm. It's more difficult, um, but women in Iran have persevered uh, uh, despite all the difficulties and limitations uh, put on them. Um, And that's what inspires me, and I'm very proud to say I'm an Iranian woman. And, um, you know, I I hope that things will start changing and there will be more opportunities for them. When I look at it overall in Middle East, uh, there's this cultural sort of uh, limitation that's put on women uh, saying that there are certain jobs that a woman shouldn't do or certain fields that women should not study. Uh, but when you look at it, if you look around, if there are role models that young girls can look up to, they say, why not? She did it and she's happy and she seems fine. Why not me? 
Now, I'm not desperate to go into space. <laughs> I always wanted to be a train driver rather than an astronaut, but my wife is absolutely would love to go into space. She got through the first round of this competition. You've seen this international Lynx competition. So she's into the... I've got one in a 250 chance of, of winning this, this competition. What would be your, your advice to her? Would it be to keep going with the competition or would it be to save up? Uh, both. I, I mean, uh, when uh, I was looking at different ways, uh, I didn't make a decision on one because it's one of those things that is difficult to achieve. So you want to, you know, have plan A, B, C, D through Z. <laughs> so uh, a- any opportunity you see, I, I would, um, you know, I would definitely pursue that and uh, uh, at the same time save up. What I see is true competition. I'm hoping the cost of access to space will come down and uh, that's what I'm hoping to see, that the opportunity will open up to more and more people. Just like first people who flew on airplanes paid a lot of money to, to do that, but I think the same thing could happen in, in uh, access to space and space flights. Uh, and what's your plan now? Presumably once is not enough. I tell people, you know, it's uh, like an addiction almost. So once you fly, it's not like you say, OK, I've done that. Uh, I don't need to do it again. Uh, it's uh, something that you would want to do it again. And that's why I'm so happy about suborbital flights. I even go on, um, you know, on uh, zero G flights and do what they call the vomit comet. And I love it because I get these little glimpses of, you know, floating freely in, in space. So are you planning to go back? You've got a a seat, I think, on the uh, Virgin Galactic space plane. Yeah, I I do hope and plan to go on Virgin Galactic when they fly and uh, hopefully not just once, many times in the future. And uh, there are other programs that are also coming about uh, for suborbital and orbital flights. So I think there will be more opportunities to fly in the future. And I'm working on my new company to just make that successful so I'll have enough money to go on all of them. And what about beyond that? I mean, would you take, for example, this one-way trip to Mars that's being talked about? Absolutely. I think there are lots of people out there who are so passionate about, uh, you know, flying to space that they would take that seat even if it was a one-way mission. And uh, I was one of them in the past. I still, you know, the whole idea of, you know, being so far away from your home and being, um, you know, being able to see Mars up front and personal, uh, it's an amazing opportunity. So is that, a, is that yes, a yes? Yes, of course, of course, yes. Anusha Ansari, the first Iranian-American astronaut who spent $20 million on a flight into space. If you're interested, I uh, looked up recently the, the current cost of a flight into space with the company she went with, which is Space Adventures, and the going rate's now closer to $50 million. Any Any takers? Certainly not for me. I, I um, uh, ten hours on a transatlantic flight is a, is enough for me. And uh, and if the space station genuinely smells like a bachelor pad, then uh, that's another reason not for going, in my opinion. It's interesting. The reason I asked her that question because you, I've asked that question to because I'm curious about this. You think well, a closed environment with with people that's been in there in space, what's it's 1996, 97, it's going to get a bit smelly. It's like but, a men's locker room, yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly. But you ask... The, drinking you ask your astronaut, own urine. Yes, you're <laughs> drinking your own recycled urine, breathing your own recycled air. Uh, the reason I asked that question was because you ask astronauts that question, you ask cosmonauts that question, I've spoken to quite a few of them, and they'll never answer. They'll always give the kind of right stuff sort of answer. It's all for the good of mankind type stuff. You ask someone who's paid to go into space, they don't care. They'll tell you everything 
Uh, Dan, what about you? I think what Anusha has done by earning the money to go into space, because that was her dream, I mean, that's pretty impressive. It's really impressive, and I've been following her story for quite a while, as you can probably imagine, from the Spaceship One days onwards. I would like to follow it on a smaller financial scale, shall we say. (laughs) As it stands, spaceflight is advancing in leaps and bounds. At the moment, it's $50 billion dollars. There's advancements at the moment in unmanned spaceflight, which are reducing the costs to almost an unbelievable amount. And this can only continue. I mean, commercial spaceflight at the moment is in the same sort of state that commercial aviation was in in the early 20th century. And we all know how quickly that advanced. So I personally have every faith that getting into low Earth orbit will be within the realms of possibility for us mere mortals, uh, hopefully in my lifetime anyway. Well, as you heard, Richard mentioned the competition, and you probably recall that I was a late entry for the National Space Challenge, a promotion run by Lynx, the deodorant, to be an astronaut. Now, the winner will get to fly in X-Corps' Lynx space plane, but the competition originally seemed to exclude women. But that's why I entered, and that's why on the 14th of July, I will be competing against 249 other people from the UK and Ireland in the name of Valentina Tereshkova and all the other women who've ever had the fortune to see the Earth from space. Well, recently, I met another inspiring woman who realised her dream, space scientist Maggie Adrian Pocock. After a challenging inner-city background involving dyslexia and 13 different schools, Maggie gained a degree in physics, a PhD in mechanical engineering, became a space scientist and is currently at University College London on a research fellowship in science communication. Over the last six years, she's shown 160,000 children what she does as a space scientist. But, as you'll hear, the path to her goal wasn't always straight and she still has more to aim for. I had a number of different jobs. I worked for the MOD, for uh, instance, for a number of years. But always my goal was to get into space science. And so um, my first space job, a space-related job, was working on a ground-based telescope. Um, I see myself as an instrument maker. So from handheld landmine detectors to the James Webb Space Telescope, I apply science and engineering to make instruments that can detect things. And then I was working there at the Mars Space Science Laboratory, a part of UCL. And from there, I was able to make the leap into the actual space science and build satellites and the um, instrumentation that goes on satellites. So it was a very convoluted route. And that's one of the things I like to say, career paths aren't as linear as we used to think they are. You can take a very circuitous route, but still get to your end goal. In the year that Valentina Tereshkova celebrates 50th year since going into space, what role did you think that you can play in encouraging women to consider science, space science as a career? When I go out to a school, I want to inspire every kid to think about science. But I do like to target the girls and say, you can reach for the stars. Girls often, I think have a tendency to sort of almost put their light behind a bushel. They don't realise the full potential they have. And I want to show them that if I can do what I've done, I've become a space scientist, I work with sort of the media, what can they do? They've just got to believe in themselves. And I think that is a story especially true for girls, that we need to give them the encouragement and the environment that they can have the confidence to try new things. How did you get into space science? I got the space bug when I was probably two years old. And um, growing up, going to lots of different schools, suffering from dyslexia, um, I hated school. But 
in the back of my mind, I knew that sort of scientists got things out there. And so science seemed like a good way to go. And although I wasn't um, doing very well at school at first, when I started doing science, I found that I was quite logical and I was starting to answer questions. So that sort of um, the bug to get into space was there from two years old. And then having a a sort of an ability to do science sort of nurtured that bug. And uh, I kept it quiet for a long time. But my dream is to one day to get out there. How will you accomplish that? dream do you think you will ever get to become an astronaut for example because you could be a mission specialist effectively yes when I was growing up I did consider going and joining the army or the air force because I'll all the um, astronauts I knew in those days was, it had crew cuts and you flew fighter jets. And I decided that wasn't for me. <laughs> but the mission specialist is a very nice way to go. If I go out into space, I don't really want to go out and, uh, as a space tourist or anything like that. I want to go out and discover things. So my ultimate plan is to retire to Mars. As I get older, <laughs> my plan is to retire to Mars as a one-way trip. Because to have a whole planet to discover would be just mind-boggling uh, for a scientist and someone who's as inquisitive as me. Is your family on board with this? I've got a three-year-old daughter, so this retirement plan keeps on moving further and further out at the moment. And uh, my husband thinks I'm absolutely mad. Um, he is very strongly um, in favour of robot missions, but he's not so keen on sending humans out. But I've got a few years to convince him, I think. And if anyone can convince him, I suspect the irrepressible Maggie Adderin-Pocock can. Uh, before we go, Ian and Dan, Rosetta is in this trajectory heading for the comet when do you wake it up when do you find out that it's all working it has on board alarm clocks timers um, that are set to wake it up on january the 20th next year 2014 so at that point then we start to get a a feeling about whether the spacecraft is, is still working whether it's where we expect it to be And we can also begin the long campaign of trying to observe the comet. And again, uh, we need to think, we need to find out whether that's where we think it's supposed to be and in the form that we hope it is. All things are possible. Uh, The spacecraft might be in a slightly different place. The comet might have fragmented slightly and and be on a different orbit. But this is the the, the nature of, of, of this kind of exploration. And Dan, you were in year one at school when this was all being conceived. You're now coming to a point. Well, this time next year, you'll be heading for at least planning the landing. It's quite a strange feeling, to be frank. Uh, The people who first thought of this mission were quite early on in their careers at the time. Many have retired. Many have sadly passed on. It's a mission that's almost passed on from generation to generation in space science. Dr Dan Andrews and Professor Ian Wright from the Open University, thank you both very much indeed. And we will, of course, be following the progress of Rosetta very closely here on the Space Boffins podcast. Space Boffins is a Boffin media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists. We're supported by the UK Space Agency, the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and ABSL Space Products. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and now at spaceboffins.com and spaceboffins.co.uk. Yes, I registered both, apparently. (laughs) Yes, excellent double the pleasure. Thank you for listening.